G'day, welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Murch. Our guest today is Nick Martin, better known musically as Les Ma. Welcome to Radio Notes, Nick. Thanks, John. Let's take you back to the age of seven and Stomp, who recently in 2017 celebrated their 10,000th show in New York City. Basically, my parents took me along to see them perform at, I think it was the Forum Theatre when I was seven years old. So the Forum Theatre is a classic, classic venue in Melbourne um, where I grew up. And this show was just, it was just the most spectacular thing I'd ever witnessed at that time in my life, which, you know, it wasn't a very long life at that point. Um, but it blew my mind completely. It, uh, just, I think it was mostly the unexpected use of you know things like garbage cans and brooms and all sorts of sort of just found found sounds random objects used to create percussion music and and yeah and just the the energy of it and the the humor too it was it was quite you know it was funny it's not it's not deadly serious or anything it's just it's just people having a great time and sweating and jumping around and it completely, completely opened something up in my in my very young brain. So from that time onwards, I, I was always just obsessed with with drums. And and you know, I would see objects in the street and think, what what would that sound like if I was to hit that with my hands or with my sticks? You know, and I'd never I'd never thought about drums until that point. Drums had not been a part of my life or upbringing, really. The age of twelve, you actually did get your first red drum kit. But what were those yeah. five years between Stomp and that first drum kit? That's how long it took for, for my parents to relent, I think, and just finally go, okay, this kid needs a drum kit. We think he's a drummer. I think what happened is uh, I, I, want, I said to them, I want to learn music and I want to play the drums. They thought that was a bit of an odd choice. They said, well, we've got a piano in the house. Are you sure you don't want to play the piano? You know, just bear in mind, I'm a small child. So, you know, this, you know your parents, they're, they're the ones who decide what you, what you get to do. And these days I, I love the piano, but at the time it, it just held no no interest to me. But I think, uh, you know, I was at, at the school I was at, we had this music program and basically the instruments were handed out at random to, to kids. And I, I put my hand in the air saying, I, look, I need to play drums. I want to play drums, 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 drums. And I got ignored and they handed me an oboe. So I think I, I, I played oboe for about three or four years. Years and then I practiced. I did what I was told because uh, I knew that one day they would just let me let me change, and th- and that was true. So I think it was by yeah, it was by age twelve I started to get some drum lessons at school, and pretty quickly it was it was. Clear. I think my teacher said to my parents, like, "Get this kid a kit. He's obsessed." And I, it was all I would do at at school every lunchtime. I'd just go and play the drums and began with stomp. Honestly, it just before that. I'd loved music ever since I was from five years old. I think I remember listening to to music intently, just sitting in front of a cassette player and rewinding and playing and rewinding and playing. I remember doing that with Thriller, with the Michael Jackson album, and also with an album by Steel Ice Band, who were like a seventies English sort of folk rock band. So you know, two pretty different things. But those were my two musical obsessions from as early as I can remember. What records were in the house? At that time, obviously, there was a cassette or two of those two, but what other records were in the house? What were going through your mind? The music that I heard a lot in the early stages of my life was a lot of Irish and Scottish folk music. That's what my parents listened to. 
So that was on all the time. And again, as a kid, I, I just thought, oh, it didn't excite me as a kid. But now I, I listen to some Irish groups, particularly there's a group called Fluke who I love and sort of a, there's a more contemporary kind of group called Keela. I guess they kind of do more fusion. But And then there's a, a Donald Looney and there's a guy, um, Scottish guy, I can't remember his name now. But anyway, so now I, I listen to music that's, got a, at least a bit of a it's steeped in the tradition of Ireland and Scotland and I love it but at the time it was just like that annoying music that my parents put on but I guess that's just that's just how I how I thought about it at the time but it was it was seeping into me and influencing my my ideas about you know what I liked uh what other music was on at that time the commitments the soundtrack to the film the commitments was getting played a lot in my house and i think i had an obsession with the song mr pitiful from from that from that song i actually remember rocking so hard we had a rocking chair one one day i was i set up the rocking chair next to the stereo and i was rocking in the chair so hard that i fell out and i cracked my head open on the fireplace and I ran out into the back garden to show mum that i was covered in blood and she basically screamed she was watering the garden watered me with the hose. <laughs> didn't know what else to do just wash the blood off me with the hose so so yeah so music caused a, a pretty extreme reaction from a young age i guess do you remember the rhythm of that rocking chair though did that did it have a good rhythm to it i can't recall i think it was just i think the rhythm was more in me you know i think it was something in my body not not the chair necessarily and the chair is just an extension of the of the the feeling before we let the commitments go, was it the film or just the soundtrack or both? Just the soundtrack. I, I never saw the film until I guess I, I think I was a teenager and I saw the film. I thought it was great. It's very. It's an excellent film. But as a kid, I, I hadn't. I didn't even realize. You know, with, so we're talking that five, six, seven years of age. I, I didn't know it was a film. Uh, I just knew it was this. It was a CD that we had of the of the soundtrack i didn't know i thought it was just a band called the commitments and so i just but i just would put it on almost every day for memory just get blown away by it but mr pitiful i think that was the song that i loved and mustang sally that, <laughs> to this day it's, i still love that song you know at weddings a few too many times but you know have you been a wedding singer or just a wedding performer uh, how far have you taken I've that been a, <laughs> Oh yeah, I've been a wedding drummer. It's uh, many a wedding. Yeah, I, I did years and years and years of playing weddings. I'd say most weekends. Just it's a way to make a crust as a musician. You know, I, I haven't done it for a couple of years at this point, but but I did it a lot. And I got to say, Mustang Sally for some reason that's just something that gets played at weddings. I have no idea why, but it's I guess it's a classic. But and it's got a sort of easy sing along bit, but. My God, it was always funny because to the, to me that song is is being a child in a rocking chair. So it always felt funny to play it at weddings. How excited is that? An understatement. How excited was a twelve year old Nick to get that red drum kit? Extremely, mm. extremely excited. I, I still remember going to the shop with my mum. We went to a, a shop that's still there, Drummers Paradise. I think it's still called that in Richmond, in Melbourne. I think it was a it was a hundred bucks or something. Got home and I remember struggling to set it up but you know over a few hours of figuring out what bit of metal screwed into what bit then slowly you know put it together and I, all i would do is just play that thing and just come home from school and you know i had to put towels over it because you know or during the week you know it would annoy the family and annoy the neighbors so i played the drums a lot with covered in towels and blankets but uh, on a weekend i was able to let it rip a little more 
because it's now such a integral part of your music and, and your performance, obviously as well. What was the first music lessons like? And I particularly like to know the interactions with the teacher and what you were learning from the teacher at the time. So my first drum teacher, she was a classical percussionist. So drum kit was not her strong suit, but I didn't know that at the time. (laughs) I know that now. She's a personal friend of mine. Well, I haven't seen her for a while now, but we kept in touch over the years. She thought it was pretty funny that I actually ended up becoming a drummer when she was my first drum teacher at age 12. She mostly taught me these, I guess, you know, what you could call rudimentary exercises, you know, these quite basic things to just get your coordination happening, get your your right and left hand able to flow one after the other in, in time well and connecting the feet to the hands and creating the sort of the neural networks that drumming starts with, that all instruments start with, but, but drumming in particular is a, a bit more about all the limbs working together. Most instruments, it's coordinating fingers or certain certain motions but yeah the, the drums all the movements are a bit more gross i mean that not in not in the sense of ill yuck but i mean that in you know big they're big movements so you're sort of coordinating these arms and legs and yeah for memory that was it was just a lot of very basic exercises that she taught me and then you know you'll slowly learn your classic rock beat number one which sounds basically like you know, and then you go home and go home from school and you play that for ages just at home and it's so thrilling. And then eventually you learn how to play and then and that and that just blows your mind for ages. You're playing these things and it rocks your world. I wish I could get that much pleasure from such a simple beat these days, but has to get a bit more tricky now for, to turn me on. Who was it for you during those times with that first teacher that you're like, okay, this is who I could become? I think it wasn't until I think about maybe 14 years old that I started to really, my my music fandom started to really take off and really become more individual. You know, it's that classic, it's that age, you know, you shift from being a child to an an adult, well, you know, that's the beginning of that shift, that adolescence. So I think at around that time, you do start to develop your own individual sense of what you like and who you are based on what you like as such. And then I guess before that point, it was more just about doing what the teacher told me because I believed that if I did what she told me, I'd get better and getting better seemed like something I wanted to do just because I liked the drums. But I guess when, you know, when the adolescence really started to kick in, the music I first started really loving was basically Metallica. I think Metallica was the first favorite band where I wanted to be like the drummer. I think Mm. I wanted to play those drums, which is, it's funny now to think about it because I mean, Lars Ulrich, you know, he was a great drummer in in some of those early records, but you know, you see footage of him now, he's pretty, he's pretty horrifying on the drums now. Ride the Lightning would have been coming out as well. And that was a hugely drum focused album from them. Yeah. Ride the the Lightning. The, The album that I loved was End Justice for All. That was the one that I tried desperately to learn how to play the song one that drumming has uh, you know, has double kicks in it. So, you know, you've got two pedals playing the bass drum, but uh, I never had that. So I had to try and learn to do weird things using the floor Tom and the bass drum to try and sound even vaguely like Lars Ulrich. But uh, it was just something I was in my mind. That's what I was trying to do, but I don't think I ever 
created particularly faithful uh, renditions of any of the songs. It's just what I was going for and what I was into. You know, besides Metallica, it's just a lot of mostly pretty heavy rock stuff. That's just what I was into. It's what excited me as a 14, 15 year old boy. Like uh, Rage Against the Machine was another huge band for me. I think I'd been in love with them since I was about 10 years old. I had older siblings. That's how I got into into that a lot of grunge music was the gift from my older brother and older sister to me was was grunge and some heavy rock music nirvana all that kind of stuff i loved it soon after that i guess the more 60s bands 60s and 70s bands i guess i got into pink floyd and jethro tull and there's there was this drum solo by clive bunker who was the first drummer for jethro tull that's it's off the jethro tull album called this was that was i think the first drum solo i'd ever heard on a record and it just Again, it just blew my mind. It still does. You listen to it now. It's, it's incredible. That guy was an amazing drummer. Ferocious energy and really eccentric. And he goes all over the shop and he's got chops for days, as we say. You know, he's, he's just, he can, he can do it all. And that was, I think I was probably 15 when I first heard that. And that was pretty mind blowing. I want to take you back to one by Metallica because you mentioned sure. it. Let's uh, do it. Uh-huh. Particularly the film clip as well because it doubles on down and it gets to the heart of my question about this is that uh-huh. the drums actually replicating that of the heartbeat and for that exact reason makes us feel closer to them as an instrument. Is that a truth that you find in drum playing, that it's close to the heart because it's that percussive beat, e.g. in one, the film clip? That's an interesting point. I think... There is something very, you know, I don't necessarily have thought about it as being a heartbeat, but definitely there's a very, you know, it's almost trite, a trite thing to say, but there's something very primal about drums, I guess. But I mean, it is, it's true. I mean, after the voice, it's, it's probably the oldest instrument that anyone came up with that realized it was an instrument. You know, you bang a stick or bang a hand on a hollowed out log and you kind of instantly just would stop go, what's that sound? You know, it's stimulating. It's basic. I mean, it can get very complicated, but the the appeal I think is very natural and simple and basic of drums and of drumming. Relating it to one specifically, I'm, I'm not sure. I guess the, you know, to go on a bit of a tangent here, when I think of heartbeat in relation to to music and how and what music is uh, connected to our heartbeat, I think techno music or or a certain kind of tempo range of dance music or electronic music i think is very but particularly techno something with a consistent that four on the floor that bass drum that just goes you know, that's like a heartbeat you know i think that that music has such appeal to people because of i think probably something to do with it feels like it's part of our anatomy or something it's really connected to that kind of thing record everything on this album is coming from you is my understanding. If we listen to the album, we're listening to you and no other performers, maybe some producers helping out, but the guts of it is you as songwriter, producer, vocalist, and sole performer on those instruments that we hear and sounds being created. Talk to me about being that solo sole performer. Do you find some sort of solace in it or is it a sense of control? Why for this project, Lesmar, have you gone for a more soul-produced record, a.k.a. Well, Gautier style. Yeah, that kind of thing. Well, it, it's both of those words you mentioned, very central, very important to me, uh, solace and control. I like the process of being 
the only person involved in this in the creative process that just makes me feel way that no other creative process can i love collaborating i love jamming i love performing with people obviously so many things happen when you work with other musicians that you couldn't do yourself and you even do things things come out of you that you wouldn't bring out of yourself but for this project i wanted to do something that was all about what i could come up with and every single layer every moment every idea was was something that i wanted to be something that i'd pulled out of me i wanted to really scour myself for what i was capable of and the control thing it, it ties into it you know i wanted to be the only person telling me what i should and shouldn't do i guess being a uh a professional musician for years and years and doing lots of different recording sessions and touring with different bands, you're constantly getting told what to do or it's just expected that you know what to do, but that's not necessarily what you think is the greatest uh, musical decision. It's just that there's an aesthetic that a band has or the songwriter or a producer has or there's something that's you're working with someone and they're going for a vibe and you want to help them achieve that. That's why they hire you. But I suppose Lasma was largely a reaction to realizing one day there's like, wait, hang on, I'm I'm a session musician. I never really sought to become that. It just was something that happened, which, you know, I don't regret, but I always wanted something that enabled me to just completely and fully express myself and myself only. I just wanted it to be about me for a change. <laughs> On this record, what we're saying is when we listen to it, we're actually going to hear your thoughts and ideas and interpretations of various songs from Killbot Quartz, for example, right through to a ballad like Reason Child. Let's talk about Reason Child, if you don't mind. It's a ballad sure. at the end. Yeah. Is this like the winding down for you of exhorting that you've done everything you need to on this record? Here's a nice tune of where I'm at. I think that's, that's yeah, you, you nailed it, John. That's basically, I, I figured that the album goes a million places. I have a lot of I have very disparate influences. So there's a lot of different music I like and that I've absorbed over the years. And because of that, there's a lot of things I want to bring to music when I make it. And so I, different tracks express all sorts of different sides of myself. And Reason Child is the least frenetic thing, I think, that I came up with on that record. And I, I thought it was just a good way to finish with a song that's just a bit more straightforward, you know, it's it's it has a bit more of a a narrative lyrically, and I, I usually don't do narrative with lyrics. I usually just do little weird snippets and images, and I'll say whatever I think fits in the right way in the, in a moment of music, you know, without necessarily having to mean anything. But Reason Child was quite different. It was more of a you know a more of a classic songwriting process i suppose you know you sit down with a guitar and you flesh something out which is something i do a little bit but not as much i mostly construct music out of moments or just little little interactions between elements you know like putting cogs together in a machine reason child was more of a this linear sculpting of a song and as you said before it's, it's it showed where i was at at the time i think that was the last track i made for the album and it did show that it reflected my interests at that time which were a little more to do with i want to sit down and and write a song i mean you don't you don't sit down and go i'm going to sit down and write a song but all of a sudden you've been doing it and then you find yourself in the middle of that process i i think is more accurate to say there's a great there's, there's something i read something a while ago that paul kelly said i might not get the words exactly right but some interviewer asked him you know how do you write a great song 
And his response was perfect. He said, if I knew, I'd be at home doing it right now. So (laughs) I think it shows you don't really know how to get started. You don't just decide to create something. Sometimes sometimes you do. There's no rules. But often a great song, it's something that just seems to be happening sometimes as opposed to something that you can sit down and consciously make happen. In the middle of the record, it really hones into that tapestry of tunes, as you were saying, those vinaigrettes of uh, ideas that are put together into the song with what's been out in the public consciousness for a while, which is Weekend Repair. And I I won't bore you by asking what it's about. People can listen to the song for that. But I like the fact that it's right in the middle of the album, that it sits there as if to say, we've been a few places, the first four tracks, but in the next four, we're going to go somewhere else. And I really appreciate that as well. So talk to us about... Thanks, John. Constructing the tapestry of a song like Weekend Repair. Those vignettes, those images. I guess it's every song comes about a bit differently. Um, but that one in particular, it started off as actually a few things I do will start off this way, which is me sitting at the drums going, what, what can I come up with? I guess you're just playing drums and fall into something or fall into a bit of a pattern and I, I remember playing, I had my drum kit set up and I had a, a Congo next to the drums and I was playing with a stick and I was just trying to do a million things at once on the drums, which is something I, I often do just kind of for the fun of it. But it, it ended up in this this zone that I really liked. So I recorded it, I guess, you know, it's a good thing about having your own space is you, you can just be set up and ready to go whenever you want. And, and it just built from there, you know, there was this drum zone and then, the bass line was was definitely the next thing. And again, it was just kind of playing bass along with the drums and just seeing what came out. And then eventually you find something. And the process just kept going like that. You know, the guitars were the next thing. And it just slowly comes. It just comes about. I'm never making things with a plan of where it's going to end up. But it's just like each piece tells you where the next piece goes. And lyrically, I guess, the the little images, they're just... You know, there is a theme, there is a, a message overall to it, but it's mostly, it's told through more isolated uh, images. Second song, After the Great Ocean Tone, which I feel like is a play on Great Ocean Road. And hey, correct me if I'm wrong. It Great, sure is. Yeah, yeah. of course no, no, it is. Yeah. It's my it's my spiritual home, the, <laughs> the Great Ocean Road, or you know, not the road itself, but um, that part of the world. That's a place where I go to feel... Um, to feel okay if I ever don't feel okay or feel better if I feel okay already. What in your mind is keeping you on track on that road that's keeping you on the path of making you feel better when you do go along the Great Ocean Road, which is made up of the Great Ocean Tone now? Yeah, a really good question. I think it's the sense of space and the, the clash of sea and coast. You know, most of that coastline is quite, quite rugged it's lots of cliffs and you know that road's incredible how it hugs the cliffs for large tracts of of the coastline and that meeting of worlds sea and land that just just being amongst it and seeing it and driving along it has a powerful effect on you for me seeing the ocean is like looking at potential death really (laughs) that's kind of how i feel and the ocean is this vast and crazy thing that I don't. I feel safer in an aeroplane than on a boat. I, that's just, it's just who I am. But 
Well, I that, love looking at it. I love swimming in it. But <laughs> That brings us nicely to the next track on the album. We won't go through every single one. We may refer back to some later, but this one here is called Something sure. I Know. And the reason why, what the connection is for those playing at home is that it actually originally featured on mixtape number seven, Surf Jazz, as part of the waves of wellness, tying those two themes we were just talking to together. Foundation Wow is the organisation for which uh, funds from Wondercore Islands was uh, part of, I believe, as well. What was your involvement with this compilation? It was a few years ago, but it was an introduction for this second song, Something I Know, to uh, be let yeah. out into the world. Well, yeah, I've heard um, – uh, I've known um, Cy, Cy J. Gould, who's the founder and operator of uh, – you know, he's the – He's the daddy, the heart and soul of, uh, and um, and back of Wondercore, Wondercore Island. He, you know, he manages Hiatus Coyote, who are very good friends of mine, and I've known most of those guys for yeah since before that band existed, well before that band existed, and and I guess he's just so Sai is just a guy I've known. You know, he's just we're part of the same city, and we both deal in music and do creative stuff, and getting that song on that compilation it was just a good excuse to to finish it i think that song like a lot of the songs on this this record that we're talking about good excuse to finish that song um you know yeah like a lot of songs from the album it was just kind of sitting on my computer waiting for something to get done with it i didn't quite know where some of these songs belonged just yet so i reached out to me and said oh, do you want to put a song out for this compilation so i said yep i've got a couple of things that are all almost finished, so I'll just pick one of them and finish it, and it's yours. Brings us to the fact that it has been five years between the sophomore album we're talking about now and the debut album. There is some EPs out as well. Let's talk about last five years and what you've been up to so people can get a sense of where your head's been at whilst you're recording this music. Sure. You mentioned the word back, so that takes us to Backbone, which is your work as the musical director of a contemporary circus. Still doing that? What's your involvement with said Gravity and Other Myths, which uh, toured Wyme Adelaide recently, I believe? Yeah, that's right. They did. They're proud Adelaideans, the uh, Gravity and Other Myths. They're a great company. They've been doing amazing circus shows for a couple of years now. They've been just performing incredible shows that they create and they're nothing else quite like them. Anyway, I I came across them because uh, one of the things I've done the last five years is I worked with Circus Oz a little bit, toured in China China and in the US with them, two different shows of theirs. And, you know, you meet people in the circus community. It was something I'd never, I didn't know anyone involved in circus until then. And, And through that, I guess I got wind of this company, Gravity and Other Myths, were looking for a new musician to come on board and and basically be the musical director for this show, Backbone. And, yeah, so that's that happened, I guess. That was the start of 2019. So, yeah, I got involved with them. And, and yeah, all basically all of last year I was touring with them. So it was amazing. We went, we went everywhere, Brazil, Mexico, Europe, North America, went to South Korea, lots of places. What have you learnt from the circus world that may have influenced your musical repertoire? hard to say what direct influence it's had on my musical repertoire but uh, there are other things that I've learned that have had a huge impact on my life from the circus community the fact that I realize that I have a, a tiny little acrobat that's living inside of me that's been wanting to come out for years and years because seeing these guys train and perform has just you know it's not quite stomp level of inspiration but uh it's it's pretty inspiring and they, they've basically turned me into a 
very amateur, very, I'll say very amateur acrobat. They're, they're impressed with my progress as a man in his mid thirties, you know, he's <laughs> going from can't do a handstand to could do a pretty decent handstand, learning some basic acrobatic sequences and, and just the, yeah, the training. So I've been doing a little bit of training with them and, you know, it's all on zoom these days via zoom. I mean, that's been a big change, a really amazing change to my life is becoming somewhat obsessed with, with, uh, acrobatics. And then uh, the other thing that's been a big influence working for that company has been learning how to use technology in some new ways. So I've always used you know, Ableton live. It's very common way to record and perform music and I've been using it for years but I guess I've only been using half of it there's a whole half of that program that I never quite knew about until having to learn this show and learning to deal with some of the elements of what you can do with that software I learned a lot about the software from doing from being this the musical director of this show because I had to learn how to perform a lot of live elements and do looping you know live looping other instruments while on stage and that was stuff I'd never really done it's stuff I'd messed around with at home but never in a live setting and learning to use some of the technology that you can use with this program with Ableton. That's changed the game for me, for how I perform LASMAR, actually. It's been a big help to realizing what I can do just by myself, <laughs> which is a lot. Obviously, you've learned a lot over that year or so with them that has influenced yeah. your own music. Uh, definitely, yeah. And, and not just the technology, not just the fact that I, I love trying to be an acrobat. Also, learning to play music to match the, the sort of dynamic changes that take place in a physical theatre setting. You know, that's a different, that's a whole different game to being in a band or to playing a musical performance. It's just music. You know, there's this whole other element. The music is actually, it fits physical movement. It, it's a different way of thinking and and also you have to nail certain things at certain times to to match the action on stage and and that's been really exciting to learn about you know to learn what is required from a musician in the context of contemporary circus that's been a really cool journey Nick of Lesmar is our very special guest on Radio Notes. The brand new As Yet Untitled album is on the back of what we're having a chat about today. It's a nine-track album, very full and rewarding listen. Let's talk to you about your favourite singer-drummer, Levon Helm. The band are just one of the greatest bands ever. I mean, they're just, they're just so good. I still remember it was a friend of mine a few years ago who, he knew I was a drummer and at that point attempting to be a singer. I'm a little a little more developed as a singer now, but back then it was it was pretty brand new for me. And he was like, he said to me, you know, have you you've heard the band, right? You know, you know that I was like, no, the band. I don't know. He's like, he just he was horrified that I hadn't heard the band. So he made me go to his house and he made me watch The Last Waltz, the film by Martin Scorsese, which is about their last ever performance they did. I think it's called the Rainbow Theatre, I believe, is the name of the place they perform in San Francisco, 1976, at a guess. And the concert is incredible, and they're amazing. And Levon Helm just shines. He's just a stunning drummer, so groovy, so amazing, and his vocals are so powerful. And wasn't familiar with that many singing drummers at that point. A lot of people, refer, you know, they say, oh, Don Henley, you know, for the Eagles. And he's great, but, you know, the Eagles... There's a couple of songs that are fantastic, but I go cram, light me up. I go cram of spider bait, but that's not knocking cram oh, by cram's saying. Cram's amazing yeah. too. No, cram's incredible. But I guess um, I wasn't that familiar with many, and, and particularly people doing, you know, cram. I mean, I think cram's fantastic, but I also 
the way he plays the drums. He's a true rock and roller, you know, and I, I don't quite have that same edge in my playing. And I guess I, so Lee Von Helm has a more of a, a subtle and groovy kind of flavor. And it just resonated with me the way he did it. But that was the first time I saw how just how much you can pour your heart and soul into the vocals and the drums all at once, which is much less common than a guitarist, singer, or even bass players and singers. I can probably think of more of them. Lee Von Helm. What a guy. In my notes, and it's all I've got, is that you're a founding sure. member, Clary Brown and the Banging Rockettes, who I'm quite the fan of. We had a great time. I mean, you know, all, all things come to an end, and that certainly did. Uh, it was a bit, a bit of a dramatic end. But, but look, until that point, it was, uh, it was an amazing wild, wild ride. I mean, it was just a bunch of friends getting together and coming up with these cool songs. It was something I'd never really played before this kind of you know i had to do a lot of homework to get up to scratch playing that sort of music i guess it's music that at least in the in the early days very much influenced by early r&b and doo-wop and a lot of motown and these kinds of things yeah getting up to scratch with that music it was a great process and then playing in this band was just it was just super fun it just took off and then we had a few lucky breaks and opportunities in the usa opened up and yeah, we toured the US a whole lot and went to Europe and we supported the Cat Empire on a tour of Europe once. And that, I mean, that was just amazing. I love the Cat Empire. I think they're one of the funnest bands to come out of Australia in the last God knows how many years. They're amazing. Another group I've got in my notes yet again. I try to do as much research, but then you sort of get lost in the details and everything else. So you're on the line. Let's just ask you regarding them. Touring Tokyo with the Lagerphones. That's a great time. I mean, so that's another band that's a bit more of a recent stage of life. I guess we all, just a bunch of guys who all got together in a share house somewhere. It was in Carlton, I think, in 2000 and let's go with 14, 15. We just wanted to play trad jazz, like things like Jelly Roll Morton and like these kind of old jazz songs, just with high energy. I mean, the way it would have been played back then, it's just that it's hard to tell that because you're listening to recordings that are, some of those recordings are, almost 100 years old we were very influenced by a great great melbourne outfit called the hoodangers who are they're just they're our heroes we really i've always loved them they're one of my favorite live bands i've ever seen and they play jelly roll morton and louis armstrong and and then also louis jordan more like sort of i guess r&b kind of jump blues kind of music all, all mixed together and then but just with this very uniquely australian kind of humor and just the most humongous live energy and yeah so they were a huge influence on on all of us and we thought we wanted to do something inspired by them and so yeah we but we ended up landing on our feet with this japan business because we had a mate over there who basically loved the band and called him up and said if we came to japan could you organize us a gig or two and he said yep and then a few weeks later he, he was like cool I've got 12 gigs for you guys and we were only going to be in the country for 10 days. So we played a hell of a lot of gigs in 10 days and it went really well. And then we just, we did it every year for the next four years after that. So we, we just kept going back and back and developed this, what you could call a healthy cult following. We had people following us all over the country. You know, people were buying train ch tickets and following us to Osaka and Kyoto and Japan is a wild place. I love it there. It's so fun. And audiences are incredible. The way people respond to music is very respectful. They give you the time of day as, a, as an artist. I mean, you find this when you travel 
around the world, you find a lot of places around the world there, you know, it's built into the culture to respect a performance of some sort, of any sort, really. I mean, there's great music fans and there is a level of appreciation in Australia for music, but also it's, I think it's not quite as ingrained here as it is in many other places in the world. Japan, though, very much so. People, people have a lot of respect for music and people have a lot of time for, for music that isn't, doesn't seem like it's engineered to entertain them. People have time, they make time to experience things, to experience weird things and confronting things. And been to gigs in, in Japan where you know, the first band will be a kind of rockabilly band and they all got the quiffs and the tattoos and they, they all drove there in a hot rod together. And then the band after that will be some experimental noisy punk thing. And then the band after that will be a J-pop with cute little girls in school uniforms kind of thing. Like just really everything just so weird and so so mashed together in the most unusual ways. And, and people will be there for the whole night and just loving every band for what it is. And incidentally, that same night when I saw those kind of three things in a row, then, then the lager phones got up, which is a bunch of scruffy-looking white dudes from Australia playing old-fashioned jazz music. So, And people loved it. Quite a place. Live at the Grove, the performance you've done recently, which we'll link in the show notes, proves that you can do this up-and-coming album, the current album, live. Is that the vibe that you want to be able to do it live and take some of these tunes out in the road on a regular basis? That's the idea. And I'm always tinkering with how can you best do do this one-man band kind of thing. These days, I'm starting to hit a bit of a stride of, okay, this is what I'm capable of and this is what I can do with the technology. And the idea is to be able to play most of the album, if not the whole thing, live. And there's a few songs that I think I probably would just leave for the, uh, the listeners at home and not try and adapt for stage. But yeah, I, I um, yeah, very much so have, have always wanted to play a live solo performance you see a lot of solo performers where the drums is just this thing that just happens underneath them doing other things. You know, they play some guitar. Or the drums is just a little beat on a machine. You know, just a little boots, 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 you know, and then and then it's just like a backing for them. But you know, for me, it's like it's the other way around. It's <laughs> the drums are the are the thing. That's where the detail lies and where the intensity lies. And and I wanted to shape something where. The drums are the, the the binding agent for everything, and then yeah, and the vocals too. Wondering whether or not you could go out with a vocal, just a vocal backing track, and then do everything else you love around that. That is an interesting idea. Well, I do have a lot of vocal tracks in my music. There, yeah, you know, there's a lot of most of my songs have a fair bit of backing vocals and harmonies and things. So it's been quite a process to learn to sing well with backing vocals that are like locked in place. You can't do anything about them. They're not listening to you. So yeah, singing along with that and then playing drums in time well with fairly intricate interlocking sort of bass lines and keyboard patterns and percussion patterns. And But I, I like the idea of a, the one thing that you think someone's supposed to do live, which is sing a song. No, just press play on, on the vocals and do everything else. Albino Rhino was released as a B-side but is now fully housed within the new album as well. Let's uh, talk about that. Sure. Is this got to do with travel? Where was the inspiration for Albino Rhino coming from? Hmm. Hard to say. I think that's one that started off as a as a bit of a drum beat. I've got this I've got this suitcase that it's a plastic Samsonite suitcase from the 70s that um yeah you, you know, if you gaffer tape the handle down I made this big rubber bass drum beater for it. And basically you attach a bass drum to it and you play it. Man, this thing is, is like the best bass drum I've ever heard. And it's a plastic suitcase. 
it's incredible the sound you get out of it. And I think I was just messing around with recording it one day, and that's how I came up with the with the beat for Albino Rhino, and then it all just flowed from there. That's all I could say about that one, really. It's an instrumental track in particular. It's like, what what did inspire that? I don't know. I guess I just played a drum beat I liked, and then and then I was able to build something out of it, I guess. Calling something albino rhino, I'm thinking maybe it was a zoo, a park, you know. Maybe I'll answer it. No. For me, a lot of my titles are just, they're just nonsense, to be perfectly honest. K-R-D-T-A-Y. Is that? <laughs> Crudite. Yeah, yeah. yeah what, what are you saying about Taylor Swift? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just like to play with words, really. I mean, sometimes, you know, I, I will use a, a name that relates to a particular thing, but often I just name things all sorts of shit. I mean, I, I just like mashing words together, o- often. Not always. Sometimes there's a very literal, this song is about this, and I'm going to call it this, but particularly with instrumentals, even with not with instrumentals. I mean, I've got a song called Sif Rippy, for God's sake. It doesn't mean anything. I just kind of like the sound of the way it comes out of your mouth. And that was a single as well. Yeah, I've got a single with a nonsense title. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, trying to do things my own way here, John. Let's talk about one more title because it had me thinking, because when you title something, I know, say, with no punctuation, I'm thinking Heather the Musical. But it's not a cover from Heather the Musical. No, no. I know say, I know say I go, but I get up. I think you can get a lot of feeling from a group of words without it necessarily being literally sense-making. There we go. Speaking of sense-making, what a sentence. So, you know, I guess that song's it's, it's more like a chant or something, the lyrics in that. It's just this... I guess it just rolls out as a thing that you just feel like saying over and over again. Do you have a favourite word game? I really like the game Articulate. That's a great game. I love Articulate. You'll need to talk me through it. It's basically a, uh, I think there's five categories, maybe six, and you just get a word on a card and you have to describe the word to your partner, your teammate, without saying the word or you can't do things like sounds like blah or rhymes with blah or begins with the letter blah. You have to describe something. So if I picked up a card and had Mm -hmm. the word cloud on it and you've got a time limit, so you're trying to describe as many words as you possibly can to your partner within, I think it's one minute. So you can't say fluffy white. Well, no, you would. You would pick it up and you go fluffy white wet thing in the sky and someone will go cloud and you'll go. Got it. And then you'll pick up the next card. It'll say Canada. And you'll say, not the USA or I don't know. Maple syrup. Maple syrup. Exactly. There's different categories, you know, geography and famous people and random objects. And there's, yeah. So it's just a good fun game with words. Nick, as we round out, what would have happened if you ended up learning the oboe, do you think, as your musical instrument? I think my solo project would sound pretty different. Something still interesting, but yeah, maybe no drums and maybe just a whole lot more double reed playing. No, look, I was never going to be a woodwind player. I can't imagine a life playing that instrument. It's just not me. Don't really know what it would be like to not be a drummer. It's too, it's too much in my, yeah, it's in me. It's who I am very much so. Are you going to wait a while? Are you going to wait another five years for another record? Or are you going to be a little bit more focused on this project now you feel more comfortable within it? I'm definitely 
planning to be much more focused. Yeah, I think you could expect a new record from me, I don't know, probably probably next year. It's something I want to throw myself at more now. I wasn't sure for a while there, and I guess I did get sidetracked with other projects and touring commitments and whatnot. And then I, I basically took a year off a few years ago. I, I just needed a year. It's just some personal stuff to go through. and But basically, I've come through the other side of that and feeling pretty ready to to pump it out a little more instead of waiting around. I won't ask you to go through the personal stuff, but can I ask you, was there a particular catalyst that got Nick back onto the drums? Honestly, it was starting touring with Gravity and Other Myths with the circus show. It just got me excited about life again. It was the travel. I mean, I've always drawn so much from moving and seeing parts of the world and interacting with people in different places and for me as well a lot of my musical interests are they're specific to a place you know I like a lot of music that comes from a particular oh, I don't know if I just rattle off a few countries in particular you know I like Morocco and Brazil and Israel and Mali I mean there's so many countries where I haven't been to a bunch of these places yet but the world and being able to go and see parts of the world holds the key to being inspired and being energetic and having something to actually create that's your own even though it might sound funny because it's like you're going and and being moved by different musical cultures not just musical cultures by different cultures by different places it's the immersion of it isn't it Uh, and the immersion of what was happening there then for them as well as you very much so yeah and and traveling is this sort of heightened state i think you know when you travel you break a lot of habits and a lot of things that you you're stuck to you know these things get broken down by just the sheer movement i think and the exposure that every day being exposed to new sights smells you know everything smells different i've always gotten a lot of energy from that kind of thing and traveling is very important to me and to my to staying inspired that's why i love touring even though you can't actually go and sit on the drums but it's more like when you get home you've got a lot to say i think are we saying also back to the question that that you did get the sense of travel reminding you and inspiring you to actually produce through that instrument that's been with you since the age of seven when you first saw Stomp. Yeah, it did. More specifically with this album, because like, to be honest, John, I mean, this album, it was largely finished and sitting on my computer from sort of halfway through 2017 or the end of 2017. Nick, that's telling me that this album was done before the personal took you away from the music. A lot of it was, but it wasn't done. It was just that a lot of the ideas were formed and a lot of the songs were sort of, they'd been conceived of and put together, but not really fleshed out. Nothing was finished. It was just like it had gotten to this point. It just needed that extra sort of level of commitment to be finished. And then some events happened and I basically lost the ability to to move forward. And basically 2018 was a bit of a write-off for me. And then 2019 came along and, just enabled me to to go that's right i've got this music that just i really want it to i really want it to be done i really want to give it to the world i want to finish this i want to do that for myself largely i never meant for it to take this long to do the second album but i just had shit to to get through and um yeah that got through it and and here it is, two years later than I expected, but whatever, that's all right. And it means the next one is sooner than later, as you're saying. I, I imagine so, yeah. The beautiful thing I'm hearing, Nick, is that idea that we started off, you were talking about you taking control of every element of the music in a good way, 
is actually what got you through to where you are now to the point that we can actually travel through the music by just putting some headphones on and having a good hard listen to the nine tracks on this as yet untitled album. Yeah, John, well, that's it. I mean, yeah, I just hope that people can hear that. I hope it's a journey for for anyone that hears it. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it was a journey for me to, to get it to where it is and I hope it takes people places to, as you say, put the headphones on and and get involved with it. It's a headphone record. Nick of Lasma. I, I, I recommend it, yep. <laughs> Nick of Lasma, thanks very much for joining Radio Notes. Thank you, John. Thanks very much. That was extended chat with Nick Martin, recorded in 2020. The album that we were talking about was released in October 9th of 2020, and it does have a title. It's called Don't Read Everything You Believe. That title again, Don't Read Everything You Believe. I'll have links to that album in the show notes, which I would encourage you to have a look, as there's some other reference points in there as well. Next episode, we're heading local and having a chat with Tara Coates and the Sub Rosa about their latest music for 2020 and beyond.